I'm Mark Haywood and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. I wanted to allow them to paint a portrait of themselves for the first time. Every painting tells a story, but what if the women on the canvas could talk? This quote is front and centre on the cover of the stunning debut novel, The Flames. We often hear that a picture is worth a thousand words, and if that's true, then what is perspective worth? More than a photograph, a painting often says more of the artist than it does of their muse. With every brushstroke, they call the shots, weaving reality and emotion together, distilling the life of a real person into an image governed by their world view. Sophie Haydock is a journalist turned author, and I had the pleasure of getting my hands on an advanced copy of her first book. In The Flames, Sophie chronicles the lives of the four muses who posed for the artist Egon Schiele in Vienna over a hundred years ago. Part fiction, part fact, the novel depicts these women in a breathtakingly unique way. I'm delighted to say that Sophie is my guest today. Chapter 1, A Chance Encounter. Let me introduce you to the four women of the flames. We have Egon Schiele's sibling, Gertrude, his mistress, Valley, and the two sisters who vie to become his wife, Edith and Adele. Though they have been immortalised in Schiele's paintings, there is much more to these women than the sensual depictions of their bodies people still romanticise to this day. The flames also follows Egon Schiele himself, who led... Well, quite a controversial life. So where did Sophie get the idea of the book from? I was living in London and one of my good friends was living in Yorkshire. She is somebody that I had worked with at a magazine after I graduated. I'd been arts editor there and she kind of was coming down to London for the weekend. And she said, she messaged me. I got this text message. Ali was coming to visit. So she asked me if I wanted to go and see an exhibition at the Courtauld Gallery called The Radical Nude. And it was by an artist that I'd obviously heard of called Egon Schiele. I went and waited for my friend Ali on the steps of the Courtauld Gallery. And I didn't know that what was inside was gonna completely, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, kind of change the course of my thirties. Cause I think I went when I was just kind of a, early in my thirties. But inside I kind of saw all these wonderful paintings by Egon Schiele. And it just, it really, really blew me away. I think I was shocked by the absolute intensity of the women in these portraits, mostly women. There were obviously a lot of self-portraits as well. But all these, all these people in the gallery that day were, were naked. You know, it was a, the exhibition was called The Radical Nude. And I just, I looked into the eyes of a woman who was beautiful you know this big kind of halo of honeysuckle colored hair and she was had her arm raised to her head and this beautiful blue ribbon in her hair very sensual body depicted in a completely loving way and like anybody else there that day I probably assumed that this was Egon Schiele's lover his wife somebody that he had a very intimate relationship with um, and I was really surprised in fact to find out that the woman in the portrait was Egon Schiele's sister you know she was 16 years old at the time I discovered a little bit later after I'd done some research and that really struck me I kind of wanted to know instantly how she had been in a position where she was posing without her clothes on for her older brother 
that was a question that kind of grabbed me right from the start. So I think that um, there were lots of questions that day in the gallery. And another one, I think, as I approached the end of the exhibition, there was, you know, information on the wall and it said, Egon Schiele had died. And I hope it's not a kind of spoiler for anybody, but he died aged 28. And I kind of looked again around the room and I just was really amazed at the quality of the artwork he'd made, the absolute intensity of it, how much he'd made in such a short lifetime. And I remember thinking what a tragic short life he'd had. And in the next sentence, it said he had died three days after his wife, Edith Harms, who at that time had been six months pregnant with their first child. And it was that detail that made me realise I had potentially the beginnings of a novel on my hands because I just thought I want to know who this woman is I want to know how she lived I really wanted to know the circumstances of her death how she'd ended up married to this kind of very charismatic and controversial artist how she felt about the other women that he obviously took a lot of time painting and drawing and the more I found out about her uh, the more I realised that there were other really kind of impressive and dynamic women in his life. So there was Edith's sister, Adele Harms. And I think it's fair to say that there was perhaps an expectation that as the elder of the two sisters, Adele perhaps thought she would get married first. So quite quickly, there was this dynamic forming between them where I imagined some kind of sisterly rivalry. And obviously I found out more about Egon Schiele's sister, Gertrude, who was really headstrong and fiery. And they'd had a very intimate and complicated relationship when they were children. And then I discovered Vali Nurzel, who was a model who Egon Schiele is reported to have met in the studio of Gustav Klimt. And that was a detail again, that really struck my imagination. She stood by the artist through some of his darkest days, you know, when he was imprisoned, when he went to trial for accusations of indecency in his art. She stood by the artist and she really did everything that she could to, to support him. And he repaid her pretty badly. <laughs> he proposed to another woman while they were intimate. He had an expectation that their relationship would continue and I love Valley for her, her rejection of his expectations and how she kind of forged her own path at that time. And I think going back to your question about where did I get the inspiration from, it was certainly from seeing these women, from looking into the frames, looking into their eyes and kind of trying to imagine, you know, the circumstances of their lives, the way they might have felt. You know, I tried to kind of, visually or imaginatively put myself in their shoes, so to speak, or their stockings, because most of them are stripped down to their underwear. So I really wanted to, to think, what was it like for Adele Harms to pose for her brother-in-law? You know, she's in some of his most famous paintings and that's not just anybody. That's not an anonymous model that he's met and isn't going to see again. That's his wife's sister. And that made me wonder about their relationship and perhaps if she had experienced any jealousy at her sister marrying this kind of charismatic young man. So I really wanted to find out more about all these women very, very quickly as, as kind of soon as I met them, so to speak. When you and I met at the showcase, 
last year, I listened to you being interviewed and you were asked to describe the book. And I, and I wrote down the words lust, delusion and betrayal and was immediately, well, I, I want to read that because that that's pure story. And reading it, it does deliver all of those three things. But you're right. I mean, if the exhibition was called Radical Nudes, you know, painting your 16 year old sister naked. I mean, that's pretty radical. Right. And that's a controversial beat that echoes throughout Sheila's life and indeed his work. You mentioned the accusations of of indecency. That was both a, a kind of a police matter and indeed it got him into trouble with the Nazis as well, who were trying to have their own views about the way that the female form should be represented in art. And they didn't like the way that that he'd done it. I mean, 28 is is no age at, at which to die. But boy, did he live. He certainly did live. He, he lived. He packed an awful lot into his 28 years. And um, I think it's it's fair to say that the bones of the story really carried an awful lot. You know, there was the incident where he ended up in a cell there was an incident in which he ran away with his little sister to the place where his parents spent their honeymoon he he was kind of dragged into the first world war so this was 1914 he got called up as a soldier and that was a real shock for him so Egon Schiele suffered a huge number of things that really shook him and shocked him the death of his own father as well, when he was a teenager, his father contracted syphilis. And there's a family myth that he in fact caught syphilis on his wedding night when his wife, his very young wife, didn't want to consummate the marriage. And Egon Sheila's father left the bridal suite or whatever it was and, and went out to, to have his needs met. And he apparently then caught this deadly disease that that stayed with him for you know nearly 20 years and, and very gradually sent him mad had these kind of strange episodes in which he would imagine people sitting at the dinner table he was a station master he worked at a train station in a small village and he would stop the trains at inappropriate times and I think his father's death really shook Egon Schiele to the core and the reverberations of that were kind of felt for the rest of his life. And I think he, he associated sex with death. He certainly associated motherhood with death and with something that wasn't necessarily life-giving, but was quite suffocating and potentially quite deadly. Um, so therefore, it's even more tragic that his own wife died when she was six months pregnant with their first child. Chapter two, from fact to fiction. If you asked a hundred different people, who am I to you, you'd get a hundred different answers. People are not fixed beings. They are ever-changing based on so many factors, place, time, setting, perspective. And for that reason, trying to bring to life characters who are no longer able to tell their own story is a challenging role, and it comes with a heavy burden of responsibility. And Sophie doesn't go down the easy route either. She didn't decide to tell this story from just one perspective, but from multiple so how much did she bear the weight of that responsibility? I bore it a lot, actually, and I think it really slowed me down for a long time because I felt like I had to be so accurate and I felt like I had to be so fair 
and I wasn't sure that there might have been this great rivalry between the two sisters and I wasn't sure that this exact scene might have happened in this way and I think it took me a long time especially as a debut author and someone who hadn't taken on a project of this scope or scale before to really feel comfortable with turning fact into fiction and it was something that when I finally allowed myself to, to let go a little bit and to really breathe life into these stories that the, the real energy and the real kind of motor of, of that story began. It's very easy when you're writing historical fiction to get lost down wormholes of information. You know, this has to be absolutely right. You know, what would have been on the dinner table at this time, you can lose days, you can you lose months of your life to kind of making sure that every single detail is perfect. But unless you really imagine how it might have felt and how real jealousies might have played out or real disappointments might have manifested, then the story doesn't have very much life. So I think that's why at the end of the book, I really wanted to include something that made it clear which elements of the story were more imagined than other elements. So I try to kind of give the facts at the end of the book and say, you know, we're certain that this happened, but we're not, we're less certain that, you know, these dynamics were at play. And I hope that that gives readers a little bit more of an insight into the fact that not all of it is is fact it's certainly not a history lesson but I wanted this story to carry people I wanted to to kind of get to the heart of what these women might have felt and what might have pushed them through their days and it's it's very very difficult with with real women because you both want to illuminate them you want to shine a light on on their lives and their stories but you don't want to do them a disservice and I was I was really aware of being fair to them and taking taking the kind of facts of their lives and trying to trying to do it gently but trying to also get the the best out of their stories which was a challenge i i think you've done them huge justice i really i really do i was very moved throughout but especially when i got to the end and i read what you'd written about here's what we know factually about these people but adele in particular I hadn't really understood until that point her own journey from being born into a relatively wealthy family and then dying in relative poverty and having lived most of her life alone. There is a, a real poignancy in that. And then the thing that really got me was the notion that her grave is unmarked and you are attempting to fix that and attempting to give her some form of recognition in the form of the fact that this is where she now lies because she is buried as i recall she's buried in the, the exact same plot as sheila and edith is that right that is right and that's something that i kind of discovered during my research and again it just sparks your imagination because edith and her husband egon they died in 1918 edith was 25 years old and egon was 28 years old they were buried in a cemetery in Vienna, which I have visited, and they're buried next to each other and their deaths were so close together. I think Egon Schiele died the day of Edith's funeral. So there was so much tragedy about that, but Adele went on to live for another 50 years. And I thought of her 
you know, and how much she would have lost. She lost her sister, she lost her brother-in-law, a man that she obviously had a relatively good relationship with and that she felt comfortable enough around him to strip down to her underwear. And um, her parents at that point would have been, I think her father was dead and her mother would have been very elderly. The First World War had devastated Vienna and all the old ways of doing things had kind of really slipped away. So I thought about Adele then and how she must have lived for 50 years. And when she died age 78, I was told by a historian that she was penniless. She was practically living on the streets of Vienna. She had no family. She had nothing to her name. She'd never married. And I just couldn't believe it because she was such a beautiful young woman. She had been born into, you know, relative wealth and relative comfort. She certainly wasn't one of these models that Egon Schiller was more used to working with who really had to make ends meet. So I was really shocked to discover that Adele on her death had been buried not only in the same part of the, the cemetery as her brother in, as her brother-in-law and her sister but actually in the same plot as Egon Schiller and, and not Edith and I I didn't know why this had never been in the public realm before. I only kind of discovered this by, by looking at the grave records. And it just made me think of, again, this kind of love triangle and how it might have all these three very different people meeting again, being buried in the same place. Adele as an old woman and, and these people that she loves so dearly as much younger people. And, um, that's when I realised that there was no marker for Adele in this place. There was obviously something for Egon, obviously something for Edith, but nothing to say that she'd lived and nothing to say that she died. And it's, it's a difficult process to try and um, dig into uh, getting a grave for somebody that is not a relative. I have spoken to people in Vienna and they very much say that it's a matter for the family, but there is no family. As far as records show, there is nobody left related to Yvonne Schiele. And that makes it a bit more complicated, but we're definitely, I have kind of contacts in Vienna who are working away and we're trying to see if something can be done because the same has been done for Vali Nurzel. She died in what is now Croatia, at the time was Dalmatia. And she was a military nurse and she died and was buried in an unmarked grave in 1917. And just a few years ago, more than 100 years after her death, her grave was restored. So there's this lovely story of the women kind of finally getting a bit of the recognition they deserve. And I really want to make sure that Adele, too, has some of the recognition that she deserves. You mentioned the love triangle. And if it were just the love triangle, that in itself would have been sufficient material for you to have written an incredible novel about those three individuals, the two sisters and obviously Egon. But it's not. It's it's more of a more of a five side, it's more of a Pentagon, isn't it? Because we've got I, I looked into Gertrude and Gertrude apparently later in life gave an interview in which she said, yes, you know, the intensity of her relationship with her brother did cross a line at, at times. So there's clearly something in there. But then there's also Valley, as you mentioned, and I was staggered by the fact that the thing that I was most shocked by in the book is actually true, which is that Egon is in a relationship with Valley and yet also in love with Edith. And 
he offers Valet a contract, which is essentially allowing him to go off. And I think I've got this in the right order, but correct me if I'm wrong. He, he wants to go off and marry Edith, but he wants a contract whereby he is allowed to spend two weeks a year with Valet alone, just the two of him. That That's true, isn't it? He offered her that that actually happened. That actually happened. And it's outrageous. He really had this expectation that whilst he had been intimate with Valley, whilst she had looked after him and modelled for him and looked after his affairs, you know, all his kind of delivering his paintings to his patrons, she did so much for him. And during this time, he he essentially courted the two very elegant sisters who lived across the street. And I'm sure, you know, it was, I'm sure he knew what he was doing. And he eventually, when... In 1915, he proposed to one of them, Edith, and he was still in a relationship, as far as I'm aware, as far as I can tell, with with Valley at the time. And she must have been mortified because I think she she really loved him. And he obviously had an expectation that his relationship with her and all the benefits and all the wonderful things that she brought into his life would would continue and she didn't stand for it for a second. You know, she wasn't going to take that kind of nonsense. So she she very cleverly refused. And in my in the novel, she kind of tears up the contract in front of him, which is this lovely act of defiance and is her way of re, regaining her autonomy, which I feel like she lost during her relationship. She'd been so strong when she met him and she really lost a little bit of herself as she fell in love with him. So I wanted Valley to show what she was made of. Chapter three, agency for the minor character. We've expressed many times on this podcast about the importance of the minor character, that their role should not be understated. Sophie has gone one step further. She's given these women their own narrative arc, making Sheila a minor character in their story. At the same time, she doesn't hold back in putting these women through the ringer. In episode two of this series, we spoke to author Nikki May, who said she wrestled with the idea of doing anything bad to her characters because she loved them so much. And when you're talking about real women who led real lives, this struggle becomes very prominent indeed. I think that's right. And you certainly do feel bad making these terrible things happen to characters that you come to love. And that's the hardest thing about historical fiction is that you know their fates a long time before they know their fates. So they don't know that they're going to die, you know, at 28, at 25, when they're six months pregnant with their first child. As far as Edith's concerned, in my mind, she wanted a baby. She was looking forward to being a mother. And that just made it all the more difficult because I knew the whole way through writing that, that that desire was going to be the thing that killed her. Um, And it wasn't necessarily the thing that killed her. You know, the pandemic, certainly um, she caught Spanish influenza in 1918. But just all the way through, you have this, you have the end story. You know how badly things are going to go for, for characters who are just trying their very best to fulfill their own dreams. And... I think going back to what you said about giving the women agency, I certainly think that I wanted to allow them in the flames to paint a portrait of themselves for the first time. 
So I wanted them to kind of have the agency to create a portrait of themselves that wasn't always flattering. Egon Schiele's portraits certainly are flawed and are always flattering in their depictions of the human body. And again, the portraits of these four women, they don't always present themselves in the best light. But I wanted to give them the chance to, to paint their own portraits and to really take the paintbrush from Egon Schiele and to paint a portrait of him. Each of them do that in their own way. And I think we get a very different version of this man through each of these four women's eyes. He shifts in different lights. We, we perhaps change our, our level of understanding of him, whether we like him, whether we think he's a good man or a bad man. You know, this is constantly shifting throughout the book. And I wanted each woman's portrait to, to add up to something greater than the singular sum. And that was something that really excited me. And I wanted to see the portrait of him that would be left at the end. I've heard you talk about the fact that for a, a long time before you went to the Courtauld exhibition, you did actually have a postcard or a, or a print of one of his paintings, which you subsequently discovered was of Adele. When you think about the paintings now, having gone through the process of writing this book, do you view them differently? Do they, do they mean different things to you now, now that you've been through this process? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think... I, I certainly do see so much more in the portraits that are that are famous and that most people, when I talk to them about this book and they see a portrait, say, of Adele Harms, the one, the same one that I had pinned to my wall at university, um, a postcard that my mum had sent me, funnily enough. And I'd looked at that, I'd looked at that postcard every day for a year in my final year at university and, and never really thought much more about the woman in it. And I think that's the feedback that I get from so many people, which is, oh, I've, I've seen this portrait before. I've seen this woman. I've had this hanging in my house for years. And I never thought to question who she was, what her name was, how she ended up in that position and why and how she felt about it. You know, we, we don't know that these women always were as comfortable as they, you know, as we might assume. So I wanted to give people the chance to to look again at these artworks. And I, it makes me really happy to hear that you have been through that process yourself of, of seeing new things in them, having read the book. I think, again, once you get to know the characters, you just want to, you feel tenderly towards them. And I can't help but just wish that the world had been different to them and perhaps that the women had had more opportunity and that the war hadn't come along when it did and certainly that the pandemic hadn't claimed their lives at such a tragic point. There is a, I mean, there is an inevitability about the tragedy in, in the stories because we, we kind of do know what, what happened to them, but there is a real tenderness. I found myself reading with increasing levels of discomfort, the cutaways at the end of the sections, when you go back to the sixties and you, and you stand with Adele at an exhibition and she is looking at, the drawings and the paintings of the people that were her entire life. And she is reliving extremely difficult moments. Those are, those are very, very hard to read. They're beautifully written and the tenderness is, is both tragic and raw. Um, and you really, really feel for Adele in the sense that in a way, 
a very swift exit such as the one endured by Edith may have been easier on her, but she lived so much longer in your story with that guilt and that sense of betrayal and, and, and the relationship with her sister and the way that it ends that, you know, at first I was very pleased to see that Adele had, had lived and then with increasing horror started to think, oh my, we're going to go back to 19, I think it's 1963 at some point and this woman is going to have to relive all, all of that. And the relationships are so intertwined, you know, there's four different sections, but they're all in every section. You know, it's, yeah. it's extraordinary. It, it really is. May I ask you about the writing process? Because um, we know you from your uh, journalism work, but this is your debut fiction novel, a sense of trepidation moving from, from one form of writing to another. I think it actually felt very natural. Right. So for me, I, as a journalist, I was never doing door knocks and kind of chasing down the kind of hard hitting news. The journalism that I was drawn to was certainly telling stories of people whose voices perhaps hadn't been heard before. So I always loved doing first person interviews, um, asking really personal questions, uh, trying to understand how it felt when people went through incredibly difficult experiences. So I was very good at digging beneath the surface and asking questions of my interviewees that perhaps they wouldn't normally say to other people, their friends, their family. And there was always a responsibility then to tell the story in a fair way, to be mindful of how somebody spoke, um, the bits that they found more difficult and to, to really turn somebody else's experience into something that could be understood very easily by other people and would have a real emotional impact. So when I made the leap, it certainly wasn't a leap, but more gradual steps, stepping stones from journalism to historical fiction, it just felt like an extension of that. At times I almost felt like I was doing my research, then going off and interviewing Edith or Adele trying to get to know how they might have felt, asking questions of them. You know, what did this feel like? What was the smell like? What temperature was it that day? You know, asking all these kind of really scene setting questions and listening to what these characters uh, said back to me. So I felt very much that I was in a journalist role um, with these characters, which perhaps is why I was drawn to historical fiction because you have the bones of a story right there. And it's just your job to, to listen to those figures from the past, to really hear them and to give them a voice in the way that they would want to be heard. So for me, that, that process was very natural. May I ask you about the future? I know that as we're recording this, the book is not yet on general release. It is available for pre-sale. I've had it in my hands since the showcase, um, for which I feel very privileged, but very soon, um, the whole world will have the joy of getting their hands on your book. So there's a weight of expectation around that. And I'd love to know um, just a little bit about how you're, how you're feeling about that. And then also, this is, and you, you should know this, this is such an assured debut. And I said this about Nikki's, that this may be your first book. I would hate for it to be your last because it is so well written. I felt very comfortable, very safe and very uncomfortable at the same time, but in a good way in your hands. So how do you feel about the fact that we're on the cusp of publication and everyone on the planet could potentially get their hands on it? And then please don't stop here. What are you going to do next? 
It's a great question. And I think I've been in a very comfortable cocoon for the last few years, really. <laughs> that is got, about to end. It is about to end. You know, I got my book deal in May 2020. So it's going to be nearly two years from, from somebody, from a publisher saying, we love this, we want your book. And that happened very quickly. You know, I had a preempt, so I'd been out on submission for uh, less than a week when that came in. So that happened very fast. And then... I've had two years really where I had a year certainly where very little happened once you've done that initial round of editing then the books finished the editor signed it off everyone's happy and there's a very long period in which nothing happens and you're kind of thinking this is actually quite nice because I know I'm going to have a book published it will happen but right now I don't have to face any of that kind of stuff in which people leave you terrible reviews on Goodreads and <laughs> message you to say I hated this character which hasn't hasn't happened yet but I'm sure you know if the book's going to be taken seriously I'm sure that will come and I, I almost want that to come because that's just part of the book having its own life and going out into the world so I do feel I do feel kind of disconnected from it and a little, I take less responsibility for it now. I'm really intrigued to see how people respond to it. And obviously I'm happy when people say that they've been moved by the story, but it does feel like a very separate thing to me now. And then it is, it's, it's incredible that people, people want to read it. They want to get their hands on it, that they do want to find out more about the artist and these women as a result. That just makes me really happy. And so what's next? What's the next project? So what's next? I have been battling with book two, which I think everybody says is a really difficult thing to do. 2021 was not a creatively, uh, a beautiful creative year for anybody, I don't think. And I really struggled to, to kind of sit down and to get the bones of another novel into existence. But book two is going to be another artist and the women who made him uh, a fantastic world-renowned artist and their stories that again have never been told which I just think is incredible you know this the artist is a household name and yet nobody would be able to you know recognize the women who who kind of made him made him great so I'm really excited about doing a similar book but different you know it's it's set again in the 20th century but it's it's a very different feel. The atmosphere is different. The energy is different. The style of art is very different. So, but all the same, all the same things are at play. Heartbreak, betrayal, lust, as you, as you pointed out earlier. So I hope that readers of The Flames will, will enjoy book two. Well, we wait to get our hands on that. In the meantime, The Flames, which is a story of lust, delusion and betrayal, is available on pre-order right now. It's a staggering triumph. Um, Many congratulations on it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Sophie Haydock, thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Sophie Haydock for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? When turning fact into fiction, a certain level of accuracy is important, but you shouldn't obsess over every tiny detail. The audience or the reader will come with you on the journey. They will suspend their disbelief, just as long as the story is compelling. Imagine yourself as a journalist quizzing and interviewing your characters. This method can help you to better understand who they are, to think deeply about how they might react, and to tell more than just the facts. 
Take a leaf out of Sophie's book and consider the many other people whose faces we know, but whose stories we don't. Can you bring justice to the life of someone else? Finally, stay curious, look beyond the surface, and never stop asking questions. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Let me know what lesson you've taken away from this week's episode by sending an email to info at behindthespine.co.uk or on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.